Wasn't that phenomenal? Wasn't that great? I know you're thinking about them, but just as phenomenal, I love to, to hear you sing to our Lord about how, long, how you long to be with him and to be closer to him. That's what we care about here. So wonderful music on each, each side of the stage here this morning. Well, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning as we are continuing. Next week, we'll be wrapping up our psalm series, the Songs for the Way Home, looking at the Psalms of Ascent. And this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 133. So if you can turn to there in your Bibles, and our ushers have Bibles, so if you need one of those, you can just raise your hand. If you ever have trouble finding the Psalms, you can pretty much just split your Bible right in the middle. You'll end up in the right book, and then you can... Um, find your way if you know your numbers. So that'll be good. Well, I have a quick uh, kind of quiz here for you. I want to see if we're getting the same sort of sources. Um, so depending on what news you might watch or read, I'm guessing that this week you probably saw a story that I saw where there was someone who did something to someone else and they didn't like it. Anybody see that? <laughs> You catch that news story. That, that's what it's filled with, right? I mean, that's the news. That's why one comedian says we shouldn't call it news. We should call it what's wrong. Um, that's just that's what we have. But this past week, just like other weeks, unkind words were exchanged. Nasty things were done. Threats were given. People were excluded. And just in general, human beings didn't get along with other human beings. You can point to headlines like North Korea, Charlottesville, Congress and the debt ceiling, or Mayweather and McGregor, or even Taylor Swift's new album has a lot of hubbub around it that's actually kind of hostile. And, and these things make the news um, because I guess they think we're surprised by them, but really I think that would be a, a more fitting news headline, man's surprise that hostility and division still in the world. That would be the surprising thing, because it's always there. And I don't mean to minimize these headlines, other than the one about Taylor Swift. I'm okay minimizing that one. But in a society that is very focused, almost laser-focused, on calling out the, the dangers of division and hate, sometimes I wonder if we, ever, if we ever ask the question, how? 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 How did we even get this idea that unity and harmony is good and division and hate and hostility is bad? Where does, where does that come from? What is the, the world's basis for these distinctions? And, and you might talk to someone and they say, well, it, it's self-evident. I, I know these things. It's, it's part of our culture. It's part of our society. It's part of our laws. However, if you follow the logic there, it runs out. That's what former Yale law professor Arthur Leff does. He follows the logic and he says, if there is no God, then all moral statements are arbitrary. All moral valuations are subjective and internal, and there can be no external moral standard by which a person's feelings and values are judged. What he's saying is if, if all we have are these subjective moral statements, then one group really can't say to another group, hey, your behavior is wrong. Because that other group with their own subjective morality can just say, well, says who? That is, if nothing universally defines what is right or wrong. 
And yet Arthur Leff, he continues and he says that, however, though we can't actually justify it, we still know that napalming babies is wrong. We know that slavery is wicked and starving the poor is depraved. But without God, we just can't tell you why we know what we know. You see, our world is busy, and and rightly so, condemning hostility and hateful acts because they innately know that it's wrong. Just as it knows that harmony and peace among its people is good. But here is what is beautiful about this morning and this group of people that you are with is that when we open the scriptures, we recognize that we don't simply feel good about unity and harmony. We have a God who has told us that it is good. For our one sovereign and creator God not only reveals himself in these pages, but he also shows us the life that he intends for his people. And so the question that we want to ask this morning as we approach Psalm 133 is what kind of unity does God want for us? This is what he says, a song of ascents of David. Behold, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore." Father God, we ask that in your great wisdom that you would shed your light on the text before us, that you would work in our hearts and in our eyes so that we would see the beauty of your gospel and the unity that only you can create. And in Christ's name and his power we pray, amen. What kind of unity does God want for us? It starts off by letting us know that it's a good unity. Verse 1, I'll read again. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, the first time you read this, if you're like me, it's like, that's it? That's really, that, that's it? That's all it says. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. There's got to be a deeper meaning, right? But that's actually the beauty of this verse. It is straightforward, and it should be, because God's people need to know what God says is good, Right? And so God says it's good when brothers, which we should understand is truly all people, all of God's people, men and women, when they live together in harmony. Like the other psalms in this series, this too is a psalm of ascent. And we've kind of pitched it as this is the, the soundtrack for the road trip of these traveling pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. And as they're going, we got to imagine that they're going down these uh, dusty dirt roads, most of them walking with donkeys and packs on and children and more children and neighbors. Do you think unity is a good thing to have on a big family road trip? You bet your sweet bippy it is. You you don't have that. You're going to have a lot of chaos. But unity is not just important in family travels. If you're like me, you probably want unity in all the different areas of your life. If you're on a sports team, 
You want to know that your whole team is working against the opponent and not each other. That's helpful. If you work for a business, you, you're, you're hoping that you're all working towards the, the same goals because then all of you benefit. And if you're in a marriage, you want a, one that's on the same page and all the important stuff and is willing to stick together when times get tough. And when we speak of unity here, we're not talking about the same thing as just not being hostile. It's something more than that. Not being hostile is, is the moment of silence in my car after I've yelled at my kids, be quiet, it's enough. That's quiet, that's not unity. Unity is when I look back and I notice the, the girls in the middle row are, are giggling together for some reason and the boys in the back are looking at the same book entranced. And my wife and I smile. David here uses these terms good and pleasant to speak to the obvious and the attractive benefits of unity. Benefits like unity allows you to know and to be known without fear of ulterior motive. Unity leads to an increased level of communication and creativity and understanding. And unity makes it easier to go through difficult times and to still stand when others attack. But while there's obvious benefits to unity, we must also consider what gets in the way. This psalm's attributed to King David, and as he penned the words brothers, I have to imagine he didn't suddenly forget that he had seven of them. I think that was probably on his mind. And as the, the last one, we know from 1 Samuel 16, he was the forgotten one, and from chapter 17, that his brothers were angry, and there was tension there. David writes this psalm knowing that unity is not easily found among brothers or sisters or any people for that matter. And there's two good reasons for that. First of all, because people are different. I know this is rocket science we're dealing with here today, but people are different. Other people are different than you. They don't think the same thoughts. They don't like the same things. They don't eat the same food or play the same games. It's kind of a Dr. Seuss uh, moment for you. But we speak different languages. We wear different clothes and we have different ideas about government and healthcare and dark chocolate. And don't even get me started on personality types. Do I have any INFPs in the house? Oh, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just kidding. You can just sit there quietly taking notes. That's where INFPs like to be. That's what's crazy about marriage. I mean, you take two people who've kind of gotten along fairly well through, through dating, and they seem to be similar, and then they get married, and they discover, you're not like me at all. What did I do? And there's these differences that you have to deal with, and you feel like you kind of start to get about a 10% handle on that, and then you introduce other humans into existence, and it gets even wilder. Because here's the formula for you. I came up with this myself. More humans equals more differences <laughs> equals more problems having unity. It's, it's very simple. So you go to your workplace, and you're like, why is it so hard there? And you look around, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of humans where I work. And you come to church in the morning, you're like, oh, no, this place is filled with humans too. And this is why it's so hard, because we're different. And it takes work and intentional thought to bridge the differences. But the second thing is here is people aren't just different, people are sinful. 
When the first people, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, which the Bible calls sin, they not only ruptured that vertical relationship between them and God, but it also broke down all other relationships. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that the sin uh, introduced pain between parents and children, as well as a competition between husbands and wives. Chapter 4 shows us that sin rips apart brothers as Cain kills Abel. And then chapter 6 tells us that the whole earth was filled with violence, which was this natural conclusion, this fruit of sinful disunity. And again, we look back to the headlines and we recognize things haven't really changed. We hurt each other. We respond to our differences with anger and disdain. We get embarrassed and we act poorly. We're rough around the edges. We annoy others and we berate people to no end. I'm not talking about just you personally in case anyone's starting to get offended, though you might think about that. When my wife and I are not feeling unity, but starting to feel distance, it's not because we're so wildly divergent in our cultures or backgrounds, or because our personalities just don't mesh that well, or we're terrible at communication. The problem is simply, more often than not, that I am more consumed with my own pride, and I've been embarrassed by something that she's called me out on. And rather than seek repentance and reconcile, I'm better at putting up shields and launching arrows. It doesn't just take bridging differences, but there is a true gap or a wall of brokenness between us that at times appears to be unbridgeable. And as we come against that chasm, we wonder, is it even really worth it? And so we think, okay, unity might be good and pleasant, David. I see what you're saying here, but I'm not so sure it's good enough to struggle for it. But what if I told you that unity could be even better than what you can see? The kind of unity God wants for us isn't just good, it's also God-given. It's a God-given unity, verses 2 and 3. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, the first verse that we looked at looked at the, the natural, ordinary benefits that we can see, but this one's looking at these supernatural, God-given benefits. And it does so through presenting us with two different pictures, one of oil and one of dew. Now, for oil, I decided to share with you this lovely picture, because this was me about three months ago, and I needed a lot of oil to keep my beard healthy and shiny at that point. All right, you can get rid of that. People don't need to see it for too long. Whew, sorry. I apologize. I'll try to do more kids' pictures next time. But the oil that the psalm's talking about is not to keep a nice beard sheen. It actually has a totally different purpose. In Exodus chapter 29, God gives instructions for getting the high priest ready to do his work for the temple. Now, oil throughout scripture is a sign of God's presence where his spirit is at work. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is being marked as a servant of God. But this isn't the usual anointing. What we see here is that the, the oil is being poured on the head, which is where it's supposed to go, but it is so much that it's running down onto his beard, and it's running down onto his robes. It's getting everywhere. 
And it's not a mistake. God's anointing is free to spread and be shared. It's the idea that God is not only granting blessings directly to his people, but also through his people. He's anointed you so that you will share it with them, and he's anointed them so they will spread it to you. And in unity, we all reap the blessings of what God has given us. It's a spreading and multiplying gift of God's calling to speak God's word and to share Christ's sacrifice with others. And so the truth of the oil is that unity extends our service to God. And then we have the do. How many of you have been camping at high elevation in the summer and it's a hot day and you're going into the evening and you set up your tent you're like, oh, it's going to be a clear sky so I want to see the stars so let's not put the rain cover on, it's August. And in the morning you wake up totally drenched. It's not because it rained, but because at those high elevations in these verdant areas there is this mountain dew that just appears as almost out of nowhere. Well, Mount Hermon was the highest mountain in that area. People from California go to Israel and go, there are no mountains over here, there are hills. Well, this one actually was over 9,000 feet, Mount Hermon, just north of Israel, with dew or rain both falling abundantly nearly all year round. But in Judah, where Zion or Jerusalem was, it was not like this at all. Their hills aren't that High, it's a dry region bordering a desert. And so what David wants us to picture is that unity is like the dew of Hermon, not only falling on Hermon, but on Jerusalem as well. Now it's tempting to focus on this refreshing nature of the dew. It seems like maybe that's the miracle, but but the miracle and what the, the author is focusing on is that it falls on both mountains alike. As one pastor wrote, high and low drink in the same sweet refreshment. And so those who seem great in the kingdom and those who seem low through unity, through the way that God only can make us come together, he makes sure that refreshment is felt by both. We have a pretty neat example of this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because here we find a church, the Corinthian church, where they have an abundance of material possessions. They're, they're pretty well off. And there's this other church in Jerusalem that's going through a famine and needs help. But on the flip side, we see that this church in Jerusalem has an abundance of offering prayers and thanksgivings to God. And Paul tells us that that's what the Corinthian church needs. And by their unity, God's dew fell on them both. And so the truth of the dew is this, that unity equally refreshes the high and the low. And so the psalmist here is helping us to recognize that the benefits of unity transcend what we normally see. On a human level, we could be aware that it's good and it's pleasant, but it's also a vehicle for the unseen God to overcome what the world thinks should divide us. Things like culture or distance or language or privilege. Unity in God's hands is greater than what we see. But what about that unbridgeable gap that I talked about before? Once again, it's not just that people are different, different personalities, different preferences, different cultures. That's not the only thing that makes it tough. But the real problem is our sin. And sin doesn't just make unity hard, it makes it impossible. 
because it's a problem that goes to the very core of our hearts. In Jonathan Edwards' book, The Nature of True Virtue, he argues that society becomes deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. So he says, for example, if, if family is your highest love and highest goal, then you're going to be willing to put other families down in order to make sure your family's okay. If your race is your highest love and highest goal, then you're going to be willing to be racist to make sure that your race is okay. If yourself and your own personal happiness is your highest goal, then you're going to be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that you're fulfilling yourself and your comfort and your needs, and you'll look down your nose at others. And Edwards concludes that only if God is our ultimate good and our life center will we find our heart drawn not only to the people of all families or all races and classes, but to the whole world. And the point is that when our hearts are disordered, the things that we love and identify with, if not God, will cause us to feel superior if we have it and hostile towards others if we don't because we see them as a threat to getting what we really want. And so this disordered heart leads to actions and behaviors that innately we recognize, oh, these aren't good. I guess I need to, to trim that back. Pastor Tim Keller gives a helpful example in this. He says, if I am a field of grass, then all the mowing that you do will do its job to help keep the grass short, but it will never produce wheat. If you want to produce wheat, you have to plow my field and sow new seed. Then and only then is unity possible. But thankfully, the kind of unity God wants for us isn't only good and God-given, but it's also a gospel-driven unity. It's founded upon and powered by the gospel. Look at the last line with me in our psalm. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There was to be God's blessing of life. If you're like me, when you read this, say, okay, Where's there? What's the there that you're talking about? And if you go back through the psalm, you start to see, well, it actually could be multiple things, and I think it's all of them. There in brotherly unity. There in priestly representation. There in Jerusalem. These are the places where God commanded the blessing of life forevermore. It's the ultimate benefit. It's the ultimate result of what unity on this earth is supposed to produce. But the problem is that it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Brother Cain kills Abel and the pattern keeps repeating through history. Aaron and his oily priests never really achieved real forgiveness for the people of Israel. And Jerusalem could not and would not be a place that refreshed the world. It wasn't there until Jesus came. Jesus, our brother, fully God, who became man to dwell among us and obey the Father perfectly. Jesus, our high priest, a better mediator than Aaron, with a better anointing than oil and a better sacrifice. Jesus, our true Zion, who brought not the dew of refreshment, but the living water of his resurrection. 
And so Jesus not only pays for the penalty of our sin and this vertical gap between us and God that the Bible calls death, but he also repairs our relationships with everyone else by giving us a new heart that is correctly ordered towards God. Which is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 not only speaks that we were dead and made alive by God, but he also says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall, that unbridgeable gap of hostility. And elsewhere, Pastor Tandy read this at the beginning, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we stop having our ethnicity, no more than it means that we stop having our gender. But our identity in Christ becomes our primary identity. It becomes what's most important. It's the strongest bond that we can have, and God himself is our strongest love, and only through Christ's completed work of his obedience and his death and his resurrection do we get to have that one for us. But how does it become ours? Well, we repent and we believe. The Bible says that it's through repentance, which is a turning away from sin and the selfish direction that you have been headed and belief uh, of faith that Jesus is the only one who can accomplish this change for us. That's how we do it. Not as a one-time act or prayer, but a continual position of the Christian life is one of repentance and faith before God. Because until God has wiped away every discordant fiber and every racist bone and every sexist cell from our bodies, we must repent and throw ourselves onto the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that his work can not only forgive us, but he can transform us into a people united in his name. So we repent and we believe. And we repent and we believe and we repent, and we believe, and we also work. For while we were made perfectly one in Christ, we are also to make every effort to make that unity shown in this life. Again to Ephesians, now chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you were walking inside, you might have noticed that scripture up on the wall. CVCS, the school that meets here, that is their theme verse for the year, which is wonderful because on this past Tuesday, our entire church staff and the entire staff of the school met right here in this room and prayed that our church and this school would have complete unity because we are commonly working for the same goal to lift up Christ and make him be known among people. And so we want to work together and strive for that unity. Here's the thing, we have been given a new life and calling in Christ and now we're to walk in it. We've been given a new unity, so we need to be eager to maintain it. 
And this is something only Christians can uniquely do because we can now treat others like no other because Christ treated us like no other. We can treat others with humility because that's the way that, God, that Christ came into this world. We can respond to gentleness because he said a bruised reed he did not break. We can bear with one another because Christ first bore our transgressions. We can forgive one another because God in Christ has forgiven us. And so we're to work at our unity with the heart of Christ because this life forevermore that our psalm speaks about is not just about being united after this life ends, which it will be with all nations and tongues and tribes worshiping God in perfect unity, but we are called to reflect that incredible, diverse unity now. And so we're to do so beginning across the pew. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church isn't just a love who you like kind of place. If we had to have a song, it'd be more of a Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you gotta love the one you're with kind of place. Okay? It's not about loving the church you, you wish we were. It's about loving the people that God has placed around you. And we get pretty used to sitting in our row and our routine, and, and we're good with the people that maybe are part of our little standard order of operations. But can you take a step across to find someone who might need a little effort, might need you to act in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. Can you see the person who's here or maybe they're missing today that you can then work to maintain the unity of the spirit? How can you step across the pews in order to get going in the right direction? But it's not just about taking that step here. It's also about taking a step across the street because the same Jesus who said, love one another also said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. G.K. Chesterton wrote, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. <laughs> we have to love our neighbor because he is there. And I bring this up to say that I recognize, I, I think there's more racial disharmony than a lot of us are really aware of. That there is a deep-seated fear, and there's an anxiety, and the media is doing really well to capitalize that and feed upon it. But guess what? Getting upset at the media isn't going to solve the problem. But what might start to is you walking across the street to get to know the person who's different than you. Christians, it's up to you to get to know the, the name of your new Muslim neighbor or the Hispanic family or the rowdy teen driver that you're scared to walk on the sidewalk when they're coming down. Or maybe if you're younger, it's the, the widow who you recognize doesn't really leave her house. But God has placed you on your street to show them God's love by getting to know them and knowing how to love them because Christ loved you best of all. And if it takes more than just crossing your street to find someone who's different than you, please come here and start to cross our streets. Because I don't know if you've recognized since we moved from Dana Point to San Juan, but the 95% of our population here at the church doesn't look like the 95% of the population that surrounds this property. And my question is, do they know that we love them? Do they know that we actually want to know them? For our unity has its greatest power in confounding the world around us when it is a unity of people who don't look like they belong together, but are together because of Jesus. Because there, God commands the blessing, life forevermore. 
Now, among all the, the troublesome headlines that we saw this week and each week, hopefully you, you saw another one. I'll put it up on the screen. It said this, everyone's eclipse. America comes together in the moon's shadow. And this is the, the, the first lines of the article. It said, for a few hours on Monday, millions of Americans across the country set aside the political rancor and the social tension that have dominated public discourse in past months and weeks to witness the great American eclipse together. How about you? How many, how many people took advantage of that event in some fashion or way? I did with my family. We, we had a, a good little time with our, our boxes and our paper with hole in it. And it was this, this single event that for a couple of hours, nearly the entire population of America was focused in on what was going on. And after a couple hours, we just kind of went back to what we normally do. But I want you to capture this idea. When we, as followers of Christ, gaze into the glorious, shining beauty that is Jesus and what he has done, then he will change us and he will create a unity that doesn't last a mere hours, doesn't even just merely last this lifetime, but will continue on forevermore. A good unity, a God-given unity, and a gospel-driven unity. It's a unity like no other. Please join me in prayer. Father God, right now I ask that you would help reveal in us to admit to our prejudice and the sin in us that divides us. Help us to go your way and not ours. Drive us deeper in to the truth of the gospel so that we may live with you as our greatest joy and not something else as the forefront of our hearts. That we might be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ and so that we might be freed up to serve those who feel left on the roadside. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.